Free Range American, I am joined with Trevor Thompson and Forrest Galante. Is that, did I say that right? That's it, man. You nailed it. Right on. Awesome. <laughs> you were practicing in the hall. I was. I was. <laughs> I was uh, I was going down, again, the rabbit hole on, on your media yesterday. Oh, and boy. The amount of epic shit that you have done in your life. <laughs> and survived. Is amazing. There's this one shot where... You're underwater and you have like this superhero Spider-Man moment with a shark and you're just like, <gasps> oh, that tiger shark stopping yeah. it. Yeah, that's that, that came out really cool. <laughs> <laughs> this is either going to be really rad or I'm going to be one arm less. Exactly. Yeah. No, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And thanks for having me here, guys. Like I said, uh, when, when I rocked up, I was just happened to be cruising through Salt Lake and I was like, shit, I think the Black Rifle guys are here. And uh, it's just so fun to connect with you guys and hang out and um, yeah, look, I think we all, you know, we were just talking in the back there. We all have similar interests of right. chasing epic shit. And I, I'm very lucky I get to do it for a living. Yeah. And you've yeah. done it in so many different ways too. And, you know, outside of just like being like, I'm going to go do adventure stuff. Like you're making huge progress in biology. Like you're finding Thank you. <laughs> new species of animal. Like yeah. it's crazy. Like it's so freaking cool. Man. I mean, it's 2020. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a new space. Yeah, no. So my my big thing as a wildlife biologist and conservationist is uh you know, kind of challenging the system, so to speak, because there's a lot of like, we know it all, you know, we're declaring things extinct, declaring things gone. And I'm like, well, do we, you know, like, can we challenge that system a little bit? And uh, I remember the first time I, I ever stood in front of a room of my peers going, you know, I think I'm going to focus on looking for this particular extinct species. And it was like, it was like Percy Fawcett in the, in the land of the lost where he gets sure. up there and they're like, you're crazy. You're, you're a <laughs> lunatic. Get off of here. You know? And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to try it anyway. And, uh, yeah, sure enough, we've, we've been successful, which is, it's fun. You know, we've, we've literally rewritten natural history like eight different times now. Yeah. So what is that process like when they're officially declaring a species extinct? Like what mandate does that go through? Well, there's a governing body called the IUCN. And, and let me be clear, like the last thing I want to do is bash them. They're a fantastic organization. They're, they're the umbrella organization for like species status, meaning, you know, whether it's endangered or critically endangered or vulnerable, et cetera. And after 30 years of something not being seen in a scientific manner, it's declared extinct. It's like, well, it's been gone for 30 years, right? 30 years have passed since anybody's seen this animal, anybody's documented or recorded it. Let's do a quick survey, do a survey. It's gone. Bam, extinction sure. label slapped on it. Now that's totally fine and totally acceptable in my opinion with regards to how to classify something as gone. 30 years is a long fucking time. Yeah. Yeah. But as soon as you slap that label on it, there goes any care, conservation, funding, anything else, right? It's like, we get it. Like there's, there's none of them left. Like why would there be conservation dollars? But my thing, and you guys can respect this as hunters is like, I love that pursuit of that really rare thing, right? Sure. I'm not a hunter necessarily. Like I don't chase things with a rifle or a bow, but I love the pursuit of looking for something that is just a one of a kind, a, a, a rare, rare, impossible, so to speak, uh, thing to find or pursue. And so I was like, yeah, you know, nothing's harder to find than something that's supposedly gone. Let's challenge the system. And and yeah, eight different times now we've managed to find something that that literally the world thought was gone, which has been incredible. And it's not like like tiny little insects or like or anything like that. No. What, what is what's some of the stuff that you've 
Yeah, well, we found we found four different species of shark that the world would thought were gone. Um, a leopard in Zanzibar, a giant tortoise in the Galapagos, and that's in the Galapagos, which is just islands. So yeah. you know that was pretty cool. A caiman, a type of crocodilian. Um, that's seven. What am I missing? Oh, and a monkey. Um, a langer species of monkey in Borneo. Um, all, all animals that the world had more or less thought had disappeared. And uh, well, I mean, a leopard is huge. Huge. Yeah. Like that, that's a big animal. It's a to big be cat. Yeah. Gone. And it was eating people and eating livestock and everything else. And it was just kind of like people flying just under the radar. It off. Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, this was in Zanzibar, a place, you know, rife with voodoo and, and, um, you know, lore that's like, oh, it was an evil spirit and it was a demon and things like that. And yeah. I'm like, well, Maybe it was an animal. <laughs> um, it could have been mean-spirited. It, well, it was interesting on that particular expedition is, you know, we met witch doctors who were like, oh, yeah, you know, we used to be able to turn into leopards and do evil bidding and all these kind of things. And they, yeah, this was not like hamming it up. Like they had no reason to make this up. This was their yeah. sincere beliefs. Yeah. And uh, sure enough, it's like, well, if these things are still happening and you're saying it used to be done by evil leopards, you know, maybe there's still a leopard here. And it's just kind of putting two and two together. Is that kind of where you get started with looking for some of these species in those areas, like just local rumors fo- folklore, like rumors? That. Like, how does that happen? It's a lengthy process. You know, I, I so what I do is like looking for these species and these undiscovered and rediscovered things. I, I do it for TV now, yeah. right? And I do it as a wildlife biologist. But for the hour that you see on television, that's like the culmination of years of research, months of preparation, and typically weeks in the field. So it's like everything from when did it last go extinct? Who declared it extinct? Why was it declared extinct? You know, why is it missing in general? Is there enough habitat? Is there enough prey species? Uh, you know, we go through this checklist of variables. And one of those variables is, you know, is there local lore and and, and customs and supporting evidence in, in the country or in the location to say that this animal could still be here, that Westerners like us three are like, yeah, that's just silly voodoo nonsense, you know? And Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But it's all got to be rooted somewhere. Like all the exactly. silly voodoo nonsense, no matter how silly it may appear to us from the outside, has to have some sort of reason. 100%. And that's the problem with my field as a scientist, right? Is we, we're very, scientists are very black and white. It's, you know, it's there or it isn't. And, you know, oh, that's, that's, that's lore. That's nonsense. That's not science. And they're right. It's not science, but it doesn't mean it's not, as you just said, deep rooted in something real. So what kind of process did you have to undergo to rediscover this leopard? It was a, it was a lengthy one, that's for sure. Um, so we went to Zanzibar and on one of the islands. First, we met with witch doctors and talked to them because, like I said, they used to supposedly turn into leopards and use leopards to do their evil bidding. Um, and we met with leopards and then we met with a goat farmer who'd had his goats mutilated. And uh, there's a tiny little national park. It's like I don't know, 10 square miles. It's tiny little thing um, on the whole nation, you know, and that's it. I'm like, well, that's got to be where there is one (laughs) if there is one. And, uh, you know, we put out, I don't know, 30 trail cameras. Sometimes we put out like 300, but it wasn't that big of an area. So we put out like 30 trail cameras. um, And then I remember one night, my buddy and I, the producer of the show, were sitting around going, what the fuck are we going to do to try and find something here? It's this little national park. It's like, you know, it's been a week. We haven't caught caught it on the trail camera like it's probably not here and uh this guy's like he's a nerd he's a big cat lover my buddy patrick and he's like oh well my cat likes this and that and i'm like you're such a dork and <laughs> it, it like sparked an idea and we made 
a meat tree. So he went to the local butchery and got like 300 pounds of meat and dangled it. You know, leopards store their prey up in trees. And so he dangled it from this tree and made this like, this like kitty cat's play den with all this like hanging goat meat in the wind, like jiggling. That makes sense. Like that's, I know that that's how they used to hunt leopards in Africa is they would, what, uh, rope them to trees like meat or Mm -hmm. kills and then sit and wait on the kill in the tree. Exactly. That totally makes sense. That's wild. And that's, you know, I grew up in Africa and and I'm the son of a safari guide. So I understand a lot of those hunting practices and that's what, you know, what I try and do, I'm, I'm no expert at anything. I just try and combine all the ideas and Intel that I can get from hunting methods to my, my idiot friend's cat at home playing with dangly (laughs) shit, you know, and everything else and putting it all together and being like, let's throw the hail Mary and see what happens. And every now and then we get lucky. (laughs) That's freaking cool. So after you re found this leopard, were the villagers like changed their mind about the whole no. voodoo thing? They, no. they still thought it was an evil spirit. <laughs> totally. They're just like, yeah, that's one of the witch doctor's pets. You know, yeah, <laughs> he's there. I hope I don't piss him off or he's going to come and kill me. And that was it. Like, it was just like, it is here. It isn't here. It makes no difference to me. It's, you know, it's a leopard. It's, yeah. it's an evil spirit controlled by witch doctors. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure they were like, well, yeah, we told you it was here. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. They were like, what part of the, the witch doctor turns into a leopard and walks around at night? Did you not understand? <laughs> I'm like, ah, I guess all of it, <laughs> but it's fun, man. Yeah. We have, yeah, we, I've got a great crew and we have a good time. We get to travel all around the world up until this year, um, and get to do fun stuff and wildlife science and, it's great. It's, it's a pursuit of, it's a very different lifestyle. That's for sure. You know, I'm on the road eight, nine months a year. Uh, I spent more nights in a tent every year than I do in a bed. Um, and I love it. I wouldn't change it for anything. Yeah. So what are you doing now that we're going through the, the weirdness here and across the world and what are you, what are you doing to kind of fill that void? Yeah. Yeah, It's definitely shifted things for me. Um, I was supposed to be in 14 countries this year and I've been in two. (laughs) So things definitely changed. Um, but you know, I'm doing some more domestic stuff. I spent a month up in Alaska this year, uh, diving underneath the ice sheets, uh, working with some sharks up in the Arctic circle. Um, that was pretty incredible. Um, and now, you know, as I'm coming through town here, I, uh, I'm in my truck and I'm, I'm living out of it and I'm driving across the country. I'm working on a couple different wildlife projects as I go doing some fishing, camping, off-roading, you know, and just kind of enjoying, enjoying some time off. I, I thought I was going to be like, all right, this is great. Like I don't have to live in the bush for this year. You know, I'll be at home. I'll hang out on my couch. I'll watch Netflix. <laughs> I did that for about a week. And I was yeah. like, all right, time to load up the yeah. truck. Let's get out of here. <laughs> time to go drive across the entire country. Now. Yep. <laughs> ah, it's not that far. No, it's not. It's not. I've like we've talked about this before, but there's been such an increase in, in overall exploration of the United States from its citizens. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's been a really positive, cool thing that's come out of all this. Like I and, think, and I think on the conservation end, that's going to really give people a vested interest. You know, that, I, I, have, we, I have, agree we have with so much public land. Yeah. So, I mean, I was just, you know, up, for a week up on public land. Yep. And there's so many people that are going to be traveling through all this public land that we're all co-owners of. Yep. That now have a vested interest in its protection. We're so lucky to live in the U.S. Man, yeah. In the sense yeah. of, um, d- don't get me wrong, we manage some species and some land terribly. But overall, like the fact, like you just said, the fact that we can 
anybody listening to this podcast, anybody in the United States can jump in their car, drive half an hour, an hour, whatever, and you're in wild public lands that yep. you have access to, that you can hike for days without seeing yeah. anybody, go on trails, see beautiful waterfalls, see wildlife, you name it. I mean, it's an amazing thing to have that. So a lot of places around the world do not have that. Yeah. yeah. It's the same feeling for me that I get when I'm like in a boat in the middle of an ocean where mm-hmm. you're like, oh my God, I'm so small and insignificant. Right. But then there's like also a little piece to that, you know, where, where you like you you come to terms with your environment and you're For like, sure. oh, I'm, cool. I'm a cool part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing when I go in the mountains, like when I'm in Idaho and like just surrounded by these trees, they're like, you're so much older than I am. Like, you know? <laughs> and then your brain loops on back to, is that a bear? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just such a rewarding thing. It's like, I, you know, I, I wonder if a lot of people in the United States, like even know what's available to them. I don't think so. I I mean, a lot do, but I think the majority don't even realize how easy the access is and how available it is because it really is easy. Like it doesn't matter if you live in downtown Los Angeles, you can drive an hour and be in the middle of like stunning wilderness. Yeah. You don't even have to go that far. Like right around the observatory. Like there is totally there's land like right, right in LA, Yeah, you know, or just up in the Santa Monica's like, Totally. I grew up bouldering and climbing around there. And I, people, I think that this sort of stuff is really going to help them see how much they can access. Like, I, I have a feeling so many people just think National Park. Oh, you mean like Yellowstone and Yosemite? Like, okay, yeah, there's those, <laughs> those two. Yeah. There's like <laughs> hundreds of them right. in the U.S. that right. are protected forever. Yep. Yeah, it would be such a cool thing if the, if that was a positive that came out of all this time is like it's pushing people away from other people into the wilderness. And I think it would just provide such a positive impact across the country if more people just got in tune with nature and like rediscovered, you know, childlike elements of like, I just really enjoy being in the outdoors again. Totally. Spend more days in a tent. Do it. And, and that, like, look, I don't mean to come off as holier than thou, but to anybody that's listening to this, it's like just push yourself outside of your comfort zone. Cause that's mm-hmm. what it takes is like, yeah. you get so, and I, even I've experienced this as someone who, whose comfort zone is in the outdoors. It's like, you get so used to like, all right, I'm gonna wake up. I'm gonna go to the gym and go to work. I'll be home. That's my, you know, on the weekend, I'm going to like sit on the couch, maybe barbecue, like just try something that's out of your comfort zone. Like try and hike 10 miles and set up a tent. Just try it. You don't have to make it, make it five and set up the fucking tent. Who cares? But yeah. just try and do it, Yeah. you know? And, and then you get out there and you do it and you're like, it's like a perfect analogy is like when you're like somebody invites you to do something and you're like, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll definitely do that. And then the day rolls around and you're like, God damn it. I don't, I don't want to go see. Yeah, why did I, to <laughs> why did I agree to that? And you're like, God, should I bail? And then you do it and you're like, God, that was a fun night. You know, yep. we had three beers and Jimmy told some cool stories and that was great. It's that same thing, except pushing yourself into the outdoors. It's like, just throw, throw like caution to the wind and just try it. And then you come back from that going, God damn, that was great. I got to do that next weekend. Yeah. So I am so intrigued by the thing we were talking about right before we started recording the, the Suffer Club. Is that- oh yeah. The Suffer Club. So like, it's out talk, there about, now. talk a little bit about that. Cause sure, I'm, like, for sure. I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm in, in for this. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in too. So we're all going to have to I think sign we're all up. lifetime members. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so right before we started recording, I was just saying a buddy of mine is starting this thing called the Suffer Club. And he, I was like, dude, this sounds terrible. <laughs> it's an awful name. Nobody's going to sign up. And he's like, no, hear me out. Like, all you have to do is suffer. And I'm like, okay, you're not selling me. Um, and he's like, what we're going to do is we're going to start doing these 
these like gnarly expeditions where, you know, anybody can do it. Like just vet that you're at least in decent shape. And it's like, all right, we're going to hike 75 miles and do 8,000 foot elevation gain in three days. And it's like, excuse me? Like, you know, so you literally just have to suffer for three days. Like, you know, it's going to suck. You know, you're barely going to sleep. You know, you're going to be uncomfortable. But the idea is just challenge yourself and suffer through it. And you're going to do it with a group of like-minded dudes or girls, whatever, you know, a group of like-minded people who just want to suffer through this thing. Dudettes, yeah. (laughs) And uh, and that's the premise of it. And he, he pitched it to me like that. And at first I was like, hate it. Love it. Like, mm-hmm. I'm in. Suffer Club sounds great. Well, I think, you know, we were also talking about this before, too, but a lot of people just haven't really undergone actual stress right. in their lives. Right. Like, really extreme stress. And I, and I think something like that would yeah. be, and that's why I think people need to do more often is like, because... How, you're not typically going to throw yourself into situations that are are highly stressful, right? We, we typically so. try yeah. and yep. avoid that, but yep. but how can we funnel that? How can we channel what the positive you get out of something like that into something? And the, and so the suffer club is such an interesting concept to me because it's something that like you can you can cater and you can get a really positive experience from something. Yeah, it's like a semi-controlled, scary thing. Yeah. Well, you guys, you know, as military men, and thank you again for that, but as military men, you've been forced into that situation, mm-hmm. right? You signed up, you knew you were going to suffer. Like, what's what's the the SEALs <laughs> thing? Is it embrace the suck? Isn't that the, the saying? Something like that? <laughs> is, is that the saying, Trevor? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, right, what, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not in the military. But, you know, you guys, you guys were in a situation where you had to suffer through something, yeah. right? And you had your team to help get you through it. Yeah. If you're not in the military, if you don't sign up for the military and you live here in very comfortable America, when are you going to experience that? Yeah. Are you going to put yourself through that on your own? Is your wife going to do it with you? I don't think so. Right. So this is an opportunity to yeah. get together with a, a, a group of people that will support you to suffer through something. And it's a very, as you guys know, very grounding experience yep. to go through that and come out the other end and be like, wow, I learned something about myself. You know, sure. I know how hard I can push now. I know that it doesn't matter if I'm delirious with a twisted ankle and still have 12 miles to go. I can do it. Yeah. And it means a lot for people's well-being. You know, I agree. That, like that kind of certainty of what what you can do is great. Like all three of us sitting here have done things where now something gets presented and you go, "No, this is going to be okay. I can do it. I, I can. I can yeah. manage whatever whatever's coming right now. I can manage this." Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I was scaling the side of a mountain. All of a sudden, I started seeing the little pixie wizards floating <laughs> around me. Like, if I can do that, they're helpful. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's, I think it's an important thing to do. Look, it's 2020. Like we're all talking about our feelings and and being sensitive and being offended. And I don't want to offend anybody. And I'm sorry if you're super sensitive and, and good for you if you are. But this is a, a way to ground yourself a little bit and not overthink all of that emotion and, and how much your life sucks and everything else. Like go and get a real, a dose of reality of physical yeah. pain. Do you know what I mean? And, and I don't want to upset anybody that's listening to this, but try it because then you'll be like, wow, you know what? Sitting on my couch thinking about my problems is not that big of a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you feel like, uh, the most stressful situation you've been in has been? It's an interesting question. So, um, I got kicked out of my home country of Zimbabwe at age 14 with a gun in my mouth, right? Actually, well, it was in my mouth at some point in the back of my head, the rest. So uh, that was pretty stressful. Zimbabwe went through some terrible political turmoil. Yeah. I, I've been in a couple shootouts. Uh, it got got really stressful there in the early 2000s. We lost friends to torture, all kinds of things. Um, 
And the reason I bring that up is that's a traumatic life event. That paled in comparison to something that happened to me in 2018. In 2018, I was... And I'm an animal lover, like nobody's business, right? 2018, I was in the Faroe Islands, a very wealthy, incredible nation um, owned by Denmark. Beautiful, stunning landscapes. I mean, you've all seen it on Instagram, I promise you, even if you don't realize it. It's like one of the most picturesque places on earth. And the day I landed in the Faroe Islands, they had this event that takes place once to twice a year called the Grind, where they they herd in Mm -hmm. um, a full pod of pilot whales and the whole village comes down and they slaughter them, right? And it's supposed to, on paper, you know, they go to a course and they learn how to do it humanely and blah, blah, blah. And it's traditional. Well, traditionally, you know, the whole village would come out with a canoe and they'd spend a week paddling and they'd get one one animal in and they'd slaughter it and the whole village would, would prosper from it. I'm all for that, by the way. Yeah. Let me be clear. I'm not, I don't like killing of anything, but I'm all for that. Yeah. That is traditional. That's amazing. Well, when I got to the Faroe Islands and the grind started, the whole village came out in their quarter million to million dollar yachts because everybody's like affluent there. They, they heard it in the entire... You can see I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. I hate it so much. They heard it in the entire 86 animal pod. Mothers, calves, bulls, everything. And every person there came down with pitchforks and screwdrivers and you name it and slaughtered these animals and went into this, what we call in biology, this hen house syndrome where you just start killing frenzy and you, yeah. you just go blind rage. And uh, I, it was a weird situation that I can explain if you like, but basically we got to film it where pretty much nobody's ever else been allowed to film it because it's so barbaric and, and the Faroe Islands, are they don't want it as public knowledge really. And it was sitting there listening to the screams of these whales getting stabbed in the head by screwdrivers and pitchforks and shovels and watching the sea. This is not figuratively. This is literally turn red with blood and watching these animals get killed. I mean, it was the the most traumatic thing I've ever I've ever witnessed. And there was no physical stress. I was perfectly safe. I you know, it was the most emotionally traumatic thing I've ever seen to just watch these incredible, beautiful beings just get just murdered like that. It was terrible. It was terrible for me. Um, you know, and I've seen lots of animals die. I've shot animals. I've, I fish. I'm a huge fisherman. It's not like I'm like, you know, a buttercup who's like, I don't want to see anything die. Like that's not me at all. But watching this event take place and this bloodlust was, it was really hard for me to witness. So you could, you could see like this change in the humans who were doing the slaughtering, like where they like flipped a switch or, or like, could un- you tell, like see the male intent, like from the very beginning of it? No, it's unbelievable. Cause the Faroese people are the nicest, most generous people. They'll invite you into their home. They will give you a beer. Like they're the sweetest people on an individual level. But as this village congregated in this bay, as these animals came in, it was like, it's it, totally, you could see like glaze went over their eyes and like, you know, I, I'm exaggerating, but like you could see drool in the corner of their lips. You know what I mean? Like they just went into this, this, this bloodlust that was fueled by everybody else being in it. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. this kind of group mentality of like, I, I think it's the same thing that probably happens during riots and things like yeah. that, that push yeah. people more and more extreme or mosh pits or whatever. I think it's that same thing. But even, even scarier and, you know, maybe more troubling for people to have to accept is something like that has a genetic basis. Like it, yeah. it makes sense that 
you know, way deep down in our subconscious, there's one dead animal. We have an opportunity for another one. And right. you, your, your sure. freaking monkey brain from, you know, two, sure. two and a half million years ago is going, get them all, get, get them all, all, get them all, yeah. get them all. We need them. Kicks in. It yep. totally does. I, I've had that. That's terrifying. I, and I've had that same experience spearfishing, yeah. right? Oh, I'm yeah. in the water, school of yellowtail are going by. And I'm like, get one, get one, get one. I'm like, why do I have four 40 pound fish? Yeah, this is enough fish for my whole year. Stop. And I have to literally think and make that decision to stop. Yeah. To be like, I don't take another fish. Like, yes, they're sustainable. Yes, they're delicious. I've got enough fish for the whole year. Yep. Stop spearfishing and put your gun down. And it's 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 kind of hard to flip that switch. And I think if I had a thousand people around me all going, get get another what yellowtail, get another yellowtail, oh, I, yeah, I couldn't flip that switch. I don't think I could do it. You know, I think I'd be right there in that herd mentality with that monkey brain yep. going, yeah, gotta get the next yellowtail. Yeah. And you know. People say all life is equal, right? I don't believe that. I don't think a snow leopard is equal to an ant. I think one of those two things is much more important in an ecosystem, yeah. right? Um, and that's that's biologically sound. That's how I feel about watching these pilot whales get slaughtered. It's like, if you if they brought in a school of fish, a school of herring or something, you know, the thing of shrimp, I'd be like, sure, it's, it's 86 shrimp. Great. I'll eat them right now at Red Lobster. But this was not that. This was a school of pilot whales, these top of the food chain creatures that shouldn't be slaughtered like that. It was hard to witness, man. I don't mean to be all touchy, but it no, was, no, I mean, it was a weird thing to see. Yeah, for me. Like, you know, coming, coming at it from, I'm a newer hunter. Like that, that would be a terrifying thing to, you know, say chasing elk, right? And you run into a herd of two, 300 of them. The difference between chasing after one for a week and then getting it and having some standoff with a hundred of your friends and just knocking off the herd. Yeah. Is, a terrifying difference. It is. It's completely different. Yeah. Yeah. And and under the, you know, the thinly shrouded veil of cultural tradition. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, it, it's not, your tradition is not going out there in your million dollar power boats with firecrackers no. and sonar and, you know, driving the whole herd in. So don't give me that excuse. I have no problem with keeping up with customs and tradition. If you want to get in your wooden canoe and work your ass off, suffer like we're talking about yeah. for a week, go get your whale do that which does still happen uh with some of the arctic native people for sure it does you know they they yeah. are still going after walrus and mm-hmm. sea lions and whales but they're not pulling in whole schools with yachts right. exactly. you know or or like in taiji where they're pulling in all those dolphin right. with all that equipment like exactly. that's that is totally different than what is going on in you know Polynesia. Exactly. Exactly Give me a break. Exactly. And don't, that's that's how I feel. Give me a break. Don't give me that excuse that this is my tradition. You you did not have mega yachts a hundred years ago. Precisely. Okay. So that's, that's how I feel about it. I know that upsets people. I'm perfectly okay being outspoken about it. You know what I mean? Like, oh, well. (laughs) And I'm, thank you for telling that because, you know, I was as a guy who has like, been in a lot of stressful situations. Like I, I was kind of like, oh, it was when you know a, a lion was charging him. It, right. That would be the, the stressful. But that's really interesting to hear from you. And like, what was the the end result? Like, what happened after this slaughter? Sure. Well, it's funny. I'd, I'd ask you guys what your most stressful story is, but as veterans, I just feel like a sissy after telling you mine. So I'm not even going to ask because <laughs> I'm sure it's much much gnarlier. But um, look, it. it the upshot of that was, you know, it, this lasted it was in the Faroe Islands in the summer, so it doesn't get dark, right? It's light. All, uh, this lasted until three in the morning and the sun was, you know, dipped below the horizon, starting to come back up and the blood started to dissipate and the bay started to go back to blue and, and very slowly. It was still very pink and red. And 
the people snapped out of it, so to speak. You know, they went and got their chunk of whale and they, and they, they left and all that was left was like some frames and, and, you know, some pinkish water. And it was like, am I in a nightmare? Like, did this yeah. happen or not? You know, it's just kind of like this flash of this thing over the six hour, eight hour period, whatever it was. And then back to, back to everyday life. And literally the next day I got a, on a boat with, I, I assume one of the guys who was down there at the, at the grind, you know, I don't know for sure, but I assume he was a part of it. Nicest guy in the world, super generous, friendly, open, warm, inviting. And that's the thing on an individual level. I'm sure every single one of those people was a lovely person. You know, maybe there was a couple of bad eggs, but overall they were just, they were great. Like they were lovely people. They were inviting, they were warm. But as soon as they got into that, that herd mentality, that group uh, setting and this, this opportunity to slaughter was in front of them. It was just like, I was like something out of a movie. Wild. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think there's something definitely to be said about the, you know, overall collective conscious. Cause it, cause it really feels like that's happening right now as well to where it's like, if everybody perceives something as being bad, then we kind of make it bad right? Be, because of that's how we interpret our environment i mean and it's tough for people to to grasp that it's just part of human nature and and, and it's been a survival evolutionary survival thing for us because nobody if the group thinks that's bad okay then it's probably bad right so it'll keep us alive to think it's bad right right but that that worked fantastic in a group of 50 not 50 million right Mm mm-hmm no, to- I totally agree. But anyway, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I-, I would I would be curious to hear how you know, in some regards, that stacks up to like you know some of the some of the traumas that you guys have have faced. Yeah, you know, I mean, honestly, like I don't feel like being overseas like that was ultimately too stressful because it felt like you were doing your job. Sure, I guess. Yeah, I feel like I get the most. Res- stress when i'm doing like human stuff like <laughs> like brushing your teeth like no what's like, so stressful like in logan's life trying to trying to like i remember being young like just trying to survive a you know figuring out financial situations like i i don't like doing like survival like that's i can handle that stuff i, I don't like doing the i think one of those two things is like human nature right yeah. put me in the bush let me figure out how to make a fire it's not like that's that's right. that's like human nature we're to be able to that. do that we're built for that yeah. give me a spreadsheet and tell me how to do tax are you fucking kidding me like i don't know <laughs> what yeah that's, that's, why that's stressful that's why i made money to pay that guy to do it yeah, yeah. totally no not when i've been in situations that i i think most people would be would perceive as being stressful like getting shot at you know having just experienced um an explosion yeah. and, and guys are wounded like that to me is like autopilot Interesting. Oh, yeah. yeah. To, to where you feel like I'm just functioning the way that like I've prepared myself to right. function. Right. You don't feel like you're undergoing this mass amount of stress. It's, it's the after been, the fact. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah you're like, whoa, that was a little weird. <laughs> yeah. Which, which I don't know, like w- if you would technically qualify or classify that as stress or not. I mean, it's post-traumatic it, stress. Yeah. That's literally I what it is. that's a personality PTS. type, though, that you guys share that maybe or maybe I don't share. But, you know, when it, same thing, like you're saying, like if I have a lion charging me, I don't sit there going, fuck, I'm nervous, right? I just react. Yeah. I go into autopilot, drop, drop the gun, move, hide behind the tree, whatever it is. It's just like, 
it, go into autopilot. And then in hindsight, like once the moment's over, I'm looking at my hands are like this. And yeah. I'm like, oh, I guess that was stressful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess that's that, that big term, you know? Yeah. yeah. PT. PTS. PTS. Yeah. Well, I mean, but that's what it is. You know, and, and there's no malevolence there. It's just, no. it is post traumatic stress. Yeah. Right? That's fine. And how you internalize that stuff is what's important. Yeah. You know, am I internalizing it as a pro stressor or is it giving me anxiety? And we're, we and the things that live with us, like dogs and cats and whatever other pets you might have at home, are literally some of the only things on the planet that have anxiety issues. Everything else responds to fear or, you know, the fight or flight thing. And fear is fantastic. It keeps you alive. Anxiety is terrible. It yeah. eats you up. Totally. It's, it adds nothing. Yeah, the, yeah. And you are the one creating it. It's yeah. the thing that's coming from inside of you is right. anxiety. And and so anybody listening, like how you internalize those traumas is going to determine how you deal with it on the back end. Yeah. Right. And for me personally, like it was, I, I'm not a doctor. Very clear. But I believe that when you put yourself in a survival situation over and over and over again, like you stack that on top of each other over the course of months and years and over and over and over again, I think that actually rewrites your brain in a way. And that <clears throat> that is almost your, your auto response is to be fearful for survival, mm -hmm. right? And it's when you're no longer in those situations, but you still have to deal with the fact that your brain is firing the way that it used to when you were in a stressful environment. So like, I remember I was driving and I was like consumed with this feeling of like immediate death. And that was something that was really hard to deal with because I wasn't in a, in a stressful environment. I wasn't right. dealing with any sort of pressure or anything whatsoever, but my brain just was firing it like it used to, even though none of that was there. And I was like, how, how do I get rid of this? Well, you I know? wonder which of those two like neural modalities is more organic. Cause thinking back, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, Human beings were fighting for survival every single day, going yeah. out and hunting for food, living in a cave, you know, making a fire to stay warm at night. Like it, it seems like we evolved to actually manage with that stress. And only in the last couple hundred years, and I don't know this, this is just, you know, as we speak, as we think out loud here, I don't know this, but it seems like only in the last hundred years or so, have we got to a place where we, we are not, uh, we are not consumed with that being a problem every single day, right? We've managed to work our way out of a stressful situation every day as a civilization. So it's like, which one of those two things is more organic to our brain? Is it being stressed every day? Does that actually make us function better as it has done for millennia? Right. Or is it actually the fact that we've managed to somehow cushion ourselves as a society enough that stress is no longer a problem? And now when we have a stressful event, we're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You know, I don't know what to do. I'm not used to this. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I, mean, I mean, we are, I think we are wired for the, the previous. Like, yeah. We're wired to packetize that stuff and live with that kind of pro stressors in our, in our lives. You know, like, um, I had somebody kind of teach me a psychological, like neuro lesson where they said, Hey, do you know, do you ever like walk into a room thinking I need to get my keys and then you get in the room and you know, you're like, what was I doing in here? Right. Specifically, he was a recon guy. And he's like, uh, yeah, I had a psychologist tell me why I was doing that. I was like, well, because your brain literally prioritizes things. 
based on how scary they are to, you know, your life. Sure. Well, you spent so much time going into rooms where things could kill you in that room that your brain goes through a doorway or a threshold and it's like, is there a thing in here? And then you forget the little key or wallet or whatever right. you were looking for, you know, but that's a good thing. That That's, that's showing your brain works, yeah, right? That's, that's, that's not human. a bad thing. Yeah. You know, so now people are living with these intangible anxiety driven ideas that are eating them up well, it, and it's be- not benefiting you at all. Do you think that all of the stress and anxiety that we have as, you know, a nation and, and the new generations and all of that that we hear about is because there is no outlet for it, like being in a stressful situation? Yeah, or being Absolutely. outside and maybe not knowing exactly. It could be as small as, I don't know where I'm going to put my tent tonight. Right. Yeah. That's right. fine. Like predictability, the fact that everything yeah. is so easy and predictable, it doesn't let your brain have that. I assume chemical release of oh crap what do I do now and that that then starts to spill over into your everyday life of predictability. You know and I I'm sure that you've seen a lot of that in some of the regions where you've gone looking for some of these things in the people there. I bet they are functioning a far happier different existence. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I I love this little rabbit hole because uh, you've spent a ton of time with indigenous people, right? I have, yeah, yeah. a lot, yeah. Um, and looking at their society versus our society and you've dealt with in the indigenous populations, like they don't have medical advancements, like a, 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 what we would perceive to be a fairly minor wound would be like, oh, nothing, we, threatening. Not, nothing mm-hmm. we can really do there. Mm-hmm. What and then, you know, our current society. Like, do you feel like you see a big difference in in overall like happiness within these cultures? One hundred and ten percent. Yeah. The more, uh, and and I think that's proven. You know, if you look at like the most suicidal and depressed nations in the world, it's like Scandinavian nations where everything's perfect. Like yep. you know, and controlled and controlled. Yeah. And you go some of the places I've been in. You know, the Amazon comes to mind, Myanmar, uh, really poor parts of Madagascar, where the people have nothing. They sleep on the floor. They live in a mud hut. Something can kill them every single day, whether that's guerrilla warfare, a wild animal, a minor cut. And they have smiles from ear to ear all day, every day. They have hardships every day. Let me be yeah. clear. They have a ton of hardships. They have to walk. Life is not easy. Life is not easy. They have to walk to get water. There is dysentery, like you name yeah, it. And where right? they're going to get water, there's... Crocodiles. crocodiles and hippos. And, yeah, no, life is hard. Take your bucket and a spear. And they live in the moment too. And that, yeah. that I think, you know, I think that's a huge thing is I'm sure even all three of us, as we sit here right now, we're thinking about tomorrow. We're thinking about, you know, what am I going to do to advance my career? We're going to think about what am I getting for lunch? I'm sure they have those thoughts as well, but they're so living in the moment. They're hyper aware of their surroundings. They live for now, whether it's getting water in croc infested, you know, swamps or whatever it is, they're, they're there and they're happy. And then you, you juxtapose that with, you know, the kid with his PlayStation and his comfortable couch and, you know, he's got depression, he's got anxiety. And it's like, you have everything. Like there's nothing that your life is so cushioned and comfortable and you take compare that same 13 year old to the 13 year old in a madagascar village who just lost his you know older brother to a crocodile attack um you know three months ago who has to go and get water at the same spot who has nothing who sleeps on the floor who's literally never seen a television and he couldn't be happier and i i do not 
believe that that is an ignorance is bliss. I absolutely do not believe that. I don't think if he knew how the other half lived, he would be miserable and want for it. I think he is so content living in the moment and happy and loves, you know, he loves the fact that he is even alive. And and that is, it's, it is refreshing to experience. And I love living like that. I've lived with tribes in the Amazon, not for long periods of time, few weeks at a time, et cetera. And in Africa and I, it's freeing to get away from all that material, to not, like, we all sit here, look at us, we all got our phones on our desk right now, you know what I mean? I don't, why? I don't need this fucking thing. Get yeah. this thing out of here. Get Put me back in the Amazon, you know? And it's it's freeing. Like, this is an anxiety box right here, you yeah. know? And, and when you don't have that in your life, it's, I see a lot more happiness in those cultures, even though, and in those indigenous people, even though, you know, they might not be as economically advanced or anything else, there's so much happiness there. Yeah, and they're completely out of what's happening to, totally you know us as a society right now like they're completely ignorant 100 percent, yeah or maybe not like they don't necessarily have to be truly ignorant of what's going on and you know historically I'm, darwin um i think they picked up some native people in south america and brought them home to england and then brought them back and dropped them back off, and they immediately went back to what they were doing. They're like, why would we continue doing what you guys are doing? For sure. Yeah. Everything we have is here. And like I Everything said, Everything we need. I don't you know? believe it's ignorance is bliss. I think they have something, and it's funny because we we fight ourselves as as beings, right? Because we're striving to advance constantly. But at the same time, as we advance, it seems to come with its own set of very severe, especially psychological problems. And the less advanced certain nations are, the happier, not nations, groups of people are, the happier they seem to be. And it's, it, I don't know, it's it's very fascinating to me, especially growing up in Africa. I mean, I lived up on the hill in the big house, you know, that oh, we owned the farm that I lived on. And then I'd go down to the compound where the workers' kids lived and sleep on the mud hut floor with them and they'd yeah. come and sleep in the beds. And there was no it was just very organic. Like we, we, I, I, the kids I grew up with who didn't speak English, who, you know, lived on the mud hut floors were, were just as happy sleeping in the fancy bed in my house as I was sleeping on the mud hut floor of theirs. And the doors were open to both at any time. I could go and eat a chicken cooked over an open fire in their hut and they could come into my kitchen and open the fridge. And it, it, and at the end of the day, nobody wanted to go to the other person. You know, we we do it all the time as like sleepovers, quote unquote, but nobody wanted the other person's life. It was just like, everybody was just happy being how they were. I don't know. It was a beautiful thing. Well, it presents such a good question is like, how, how do we take what they're doing in indigenous cultures? Like, how, how do we incorporate, like, is there a happy medium between there to where, you know, is, is there an optimal, optimal way for for humans to live because it seems like we're going in this direction of just stacking on top of each other in urban areas. It, it doesn't feel like we're, we're going back towards the indigenous parts. Like we're, we're going opposite. Like I agree. We're getting more concentrated and, and more tucked into, and it doesn't seem like it's going to change. I think it's something that all three, I know without any doubt, all three of us believe, which is that it's, it's, you got to spend some time outside. You just have to like you, you can have the nice house and the PlayStation and the cell phone and all that, but put it down once in a while, go outside, you know, disconnect. I think that's really important for, for like mental and psychological well-being. I really do. I, I think it makes you a happier person. Well, speaking of not disconnecting, you've hosted a bunch of shows yeah. <laughs> and done a ton of media like that. Do you feel like you've been in incorporating uh, a message similar to that 
into what you've put out into the world on the media sense? I try very hard to. I mean, my main message is conservation, right? Yeah. I, I if, if I can use the television, the cell phone, you name it, to promote wildlife conservation, I'll, I'll be on it all day long. But, you know, the places we go, there's no, there's no internet, there's no Wi-Fi, there's, <laughs> there's no AC, you know, and, yeah. and we show that on every expedition. Um, and it, it is a big part of what we do is living in tents and sleeping in hammocks. And, you know, some nights we're fishing for our own dinner and other nights we're rubbing, well, very rarely rubbing sticks, but, you know, making a fire. And it's, it's a part of how we have to live to work in these remote areas. And, you know, my crew suffers, so do I, but at the end of the day, we're all smiling. Um, and I think, I think people can relate to that. You know, I get a, I get hundreds of messages every week from parents, college kids, uh, teenagers, you name it going, Hey, I want to do what you do. Like I see what you're doing for the world of conservation and I see how you're living outside and, and, you know, trying to be more sustainable. And I want to do that. And the fact that I feel like at least I'm inspiring a handful of people to do that makes it all worth it for me. That's awesome. Cause I think about like my nieces when you say stuff about like that and their, their favorite thing in the world is animals. Yeah. That's like awesome. fr- fr- from the, from the moments that they could communicate, whether that be through speaking or hand gestures or whatever, like it's about animals. Like that's great. It, it's this like curiosity that exists within us. And I think just as we get older, like we kind of lose that a little bit because we don't, we're not like, we don't have that awe about it anymore. Well, and then, and then we can't go and see them on a regular mm-hmm. basis. And we're almost told it's frivolous. Like, why are you doing that? Being yeah. an adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The hell does that have to do with anything? Like we spent the last two and a half million years living amongst everything else on this planet. Right. And only in the last 10,000, we've decided now nah, we're going to wall this up instead. Exactly. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I, I think it, it, goes back to what we're saying. It's within us to be connected to that. And I think I'm very fortunate because that passion for wild animals and creatures and life, I never stepped away from it. So I never gave myself the opportunity to disconnect from it. And I think that's what happens is we become teenagers or whatever, middle schoolers. And we're like, I'm going to play football and I'm going to play PlayStation. And you disconnect from nature and then you don't find your way back to it. And I, I think as long as you stay close to it, it, that, that excitement for it never goes away. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like myself, I have like this, like I love dogs. Right. And I think that that is an extension. <laughs> I, I couldn't tell walking. In the hall right <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Logan's We're, being trailed what? by three dogs yeah. everywhere. <laughs> I, I've got the wolf pack everywhere we go. It's like the fat pepper. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's this, like, there is such a way and you're so good as like having a relationship with these these beings outside of owning them. Like for for me personally, like one of, one of the things I like doing the most, one of the most rewarding things, like interacting with a horse, Yeah, like the concept of getting on an animal Mm -hmm. and riding (laughs) it. It's so cool. Please don't hurt me. And then like finding a middle ground where you can like communicate, you can tell it where to go. You can tell how fast to move and stuff like that. Like that is, that's so like embedded in who I am to want to do that mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And I like, there's so much that can be said and there's so much reward that comes from interactions like that. Like you feel a part of the earth when you I do think stuff so. like that. I think so. And it, it's like, you know, to, to, to like draw an, draw an analogy to that. It's like you go to a beautiful hotel, right? Stay in that hotel for a night. 
You're going to be telling your friends about that in 10 years? Probably not. Yeah. You exactly. go, you go out in the woods and have that kind of experience or, you know, or out on a farm and have that kind of experience with a horse. You will be telling that story for the rest of your life. You will remember that for the rest of your life. One of those two things is comfort zone and the other isn't. Right. You know, one is, oh, this cushy hotel with the beautiful bed and the nice sauna tub, jacuzzi tub, right? Who gives a shit? Don't, don't get me wrong. I love the yeah. sauna tub. I'm staying, I'm staying in one <laughs> right here in Salt Lake yeah. City. But that's not, if you do that, if that's all you do, it means nothing. You know, you have to go to the other side and have those experiences, those connections with nature, with horses, with animals. With It doesn't even have to be animals. You can have that connection with a waterfall. You know what I mean? Sure. And then it's something you remember that, that's important to you forever. Mm-hmm. What's oh, your yeah. favorite animal? Mm. Ooh. Good question. I I love teethy things. You yeah. know, yeah. So I, oh, I we, love, can't, we can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> I love snakes, first of all. Um, they're probably my first true love in the wild world. Um, and the reason being growing up in Zimbabwe, son of safari business owners, uh, they would all go out on safari and you know, photograph lions and look for elephants. And I was stuck back at camp as a, as a young boy is who couldn't just venture into yeah. the bush. So I'd be flipping over logs and sticks and catching cobras and come back and I'd have a snake in each hand. My mom would be like, Oh my God. Um, but I think as, as I've become an adult, my favorite creatures to work with are sharks and crocs. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's from a shark right there. I sw- I've swum with crocodiles a bunch. Like when you're interacting with those animals, you're not in charge. You, no matter with a snake, you're right. always in charge. You can always kind of detain it and you can always, you know, even if it's a huge anaconda or something, you're in charge. When you're working with a crocodile in the water, or a shark in the water, you are not in charge. They're yeah. in charge. And so you have to play their game as opposed to them playing yours. And that's a, that's a cool experience. That's like, super interesting, dude. So, so you actually like, you like that feeling of not being at the top of the food chain. I do. Yeah. I like being put in my place respectively in the ecosystem. And it's, it's nice to experience that, to like get in the water with a massive tiger shark and be like, you know, there's things I can do to stop you from hurting me, like certain body languages and certain movements. But at the end of the day, you're the one that makes the decision. You, the tiger shark, decides whether you eat me or not, whether you hurt me or not. Yeah. And I'm gonna, I'm here to be respectful of your space and, and be in your zone. And I, I, I ask you with my body language to be respectful of mine. And that's a cool feeling. It's, it's, it's hard to dance that dance. And it's really, that's, that's what gets my jollies. You know, that's like as exciting as it gets. It's kind of, it's a, it's a cool kind of voodoo. Like um, I was living in Hawaii for five years and spearfishing at every opportunity. Love that. And, uh, that was how I was taught to, to fish. They're like, just respect the sharks. Yep. Never bother them. If they come up to you, just hand over the stringer. That's all they want. Uh-huh. Like you, you show them that you understand that this is their system, not yours. Yep. And yeah, it's freaking wild. And if you try to dominate it, you'll lose. You oh yeah. Uh, yeah. You hear these guys <laughs> like, you know, I'm going to conquer nature or whatever. You cannot conquer nature. Like <laughs> yeah. It will conquer you. Good luck, homie. Of the time. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, say a little bit more about the, the body language elements. Like when you're in the water with a shark like that and you're trying to communicate something like, what are, what are you doing? If you act like prey, they're going to treat you like prey, right? You turn and run. They're going to be like, yes, sir. I sure will. I will take a bite. If you puff your shoulders up, take them head on, make eye contact, swim. If a shark is coming at me and I've done this many, many times on, on TV, if a shark is swimming at me with aggressive body language, like fins locked back arch coming at me, I have to fight every instinct in my body to swim away and swim (laughs) head on right at it. And then that shark goes, oh, this is not 
a tuna that I need to eat. This is another apex predator who's now challenging me. I need to pump the brakes. And you have to fight your own natural instinct, your, your fight or flight response, and you have to go into fight mode because if you go into flight mode, you're screwed every time. And that, you know, there's a couple animals that that doesn't work with, and we could get into the specifics of that. But most of the time, it, that's, that's the mentality you have to stand your ground, show them that you're not prey. If you run scared, they will treat you like you're running scared. seems like every predator is that way. Like you turn and show them face and they'll rethink what they're doing. Totally. They, they might not stop. Exactly. But at least they're going to reconsider what's happening. Well, apex predators, if you're at the top of the food chain, you know, you're very, you're, you're very, first of all, if you're an apex predator, you're more intelligent. Like that's just proven, right? You're, you're managing the ecosystem. If you realize that that, that me as a person is going to face off with you, that means that a face off is going to result in an injury, right? Or it could result in an injury. And if I'm, if I'm the tiger shark, if I'm the lion, whatever, and I think that I might get injured doing this thing, as opposed to, you know, grabbing it on the hind as it runs away, I have to rethink whether or not that's worth it to me to make that kill or make that attack. Because if I'm the lion and I'm being challenged and I lose an eye, that I lose my pride, right? I lose, I, I, and I know that instinctually as the animal. So that's where when you don't act as prey and you act as another predator, that, that's the instinct that those smart animals have. They go, I don't know if it's worth it to me to challenge this sure. creature. And that, that split second can be a life-saving second where that animal makes a decision whether or not it's going to challenge you. Have you had a couple instances where you have turned like that and say, you know, bluffed at a predator and had them back down? Oh, absolutely. And, and the opposite. I've had them not back down as well, which is much worse. Um, but yeah, no, I've, I've, that, that's how I engage with sharks, like we were saying. But I've done that on land too with, um, with lions. I've done it with rhinos. I learned to do this as a young boy um, under a very famous, you guys are military men, you might know, recall the Salu Scouts from mm-hmm. Zimbabwe, under a very famous Salu Scout named Stretch Ferreira. And he became an avid Bushman and yeah, safari Yeah, these guys guy. are legendary. Legendary, yeah. yeah. So he, I had a mentor who was a Salu Scout. Um, wow. And yeah, he was an amazing man. And his stories are, you know, un- <laughs> unbelievable. And he does not like to tell them. You have to get him very drunk. Yeah. Um, but because uh, all the gin. Yeah. <laughs> it's so interesting because you're dealing with that environment. Yeah. for those guys and then you're also dealing with warfare exactly. on top of that exactly it's a whole different ball game so they had to learn how to manage the wildlife on foot in silence while conducting warfare <laughs> yeah and um anyway my mentor was a salute scout and he taught me how to do it at about age 14 with elephants you know and he would walk with me he's a big guy we call him stretch because he was six foot eight and he'd walk with me as this little 14 year old boy and he'd be like see that bull we're gonna make that bull elephant charge you and i would be shaking <laughs> you know shaking and we'd walk up to it and the bull would turn and face and it would start to kick up dust and it would start to flap its ears and we'd keep walking. We wouldn't back down. We'd keep walking towards it. And sure enough, that bull would come charging up and it would stop from you to me. I swear to God, you could feel the heat off the animal, everything. And, oh my and, God. And Stretch would say, if you run, you're dead. And he was right. If I'd turn and run, it would have trampled me. But if I stand my ground with it, with him and with Stretch, the animal would stop right in front of me and be like, are you going to do this or not? You know, it's just like the guy at the bar puffs up his chest yeah. and we'd be like, we're not going to do this. And he'd be like, right, well, neither am I. And the elephant would turn and we'd turn. And it's, I learned it. I was, you know, that was, that was how I learned as a young boy. <laughs> that so is incredible. bonkers. Like, how many 14 year olds ever get experiences like that, man? Don't run away. Lucky. I was very, very lucky. And it's, it's shaped my whole life learning those tricks. Yeah. Um, it really has. It, it's how I 
it's how I react with people. It's how I react with animals. And, you know, hopefully one day it doesn't get me, but I, I love doing it. And I love sharing that with the world. That's why I've gone into media, because I like to share that these things are not just going to kill you. Like, they're intelligent. They know what they're doing. Like, let me show you at risk to myself while you yeah. sit on your couch how we can manage these problems and not have to kill them and eradicate them. Yeah, and it's something, you know, as as intelligent as a leopard or as, quote, dumb, people want to say, mm-hmm. as a shark is, yep. right? Like, all these things are thoughtful creatures sure. and co-members of the animal kingdom along with us. We are not apart. We just live apart. Correct. Exactly right. We are, this is, we are, this is one planet. We are all connected in some way or another. We're all in the same home. That's right. Yep. Totally. Amen. <laughs> Amen. So yeah, that was, that was my, that was kind of how I learned and I love it. I, I, and I use it often. Yeah. And done a great job of like just spreading a passion for wildlife. It's, like your social media is just fantastic. Oh, like, thank I feel you, like man. A kid yes. Looking at stuff again. <laughs> what, what, look, there's more. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, what was the culprit that that got you to like? Oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna spread this through media. Was there like a, a light switch that happened for you? Totally. Yeah. Totally. And it's a it's a weird story, man. Um, I was a biologist, right? I grew up, like I said, I loved animals. I came to America at age 14. I went to university to be a biologist. I studied biology and I was working down the path of being an academic biologist, yeah. you know, writing papers, doing field surveys, you name it. Yeah. Started at the bottom as a tech. I mean, I literally counted ants for a while, picked weeds, you name it, started working my way up. And I thought that was my career. I thought as a wildlife guy, bio- being a, a academic biologist is the only way that I can make a difference. And... um. In t- 2013, I came home from a job on the islands, Channel Islands of California, where I was working out there, plopped down on the couch covered in dirt. My girlfriend at the time goes, check out this fucking thing on TV. And it was a show called Naked and Afraid, survival yep. show. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, that's silly. She's like, you should do this. And I was like, well, why do you want me to do that? What's the matter with you? Uh, <laughs> do you she, hate me that much? <laughs> yeah, seriously. And she's like, no, I've seen you do all this stuff just when we're out camping for fun. And these are like people claiming they're the best in the world at this. Like, I think you should do this. So I was like gassed and I sent a very cocky, shitty email being like, I'm better than anybody on your show. To, <laughs> hey, uh, that's going to get the producers that. looking. It, it did. Yeah. To, uh, to the, the Naked and Afraid casting production company. Anyway, long story short, I went into Naked and Afraid. I had tons of fun with it. Like most guys, girls, everybody on there, they're like breaking down, crying. They're miserable. I hate it. I'm starving. I was like smiling, running around, like whirling my dick around, like having way too much fun. Like I was like, this is a, this is a game. <laughs> and uh, I, I came, came. Sure, the producers were uh, super stoked. Like, oh, oh, no, they okay. hated it. They hated Crap. it. They're like, this is terrible TV. Like you're not sm- you're not suffering. I was like, sorry. <laughs> I like this. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And, and this wasn't like, oh, okay, he got his in through Naked and Afraid because I went back to being a biologist. But then when the show came out and I, I, I compared two things, I compared a paper that I wrote that took three years. I got 400 reads by like-minded scientists who already knew the subject matter. And then I looked at that crummy TV show that I just signed up for and it got 4 million views. And I was like, wow, I know which of these two is more impactful as a medium. Sure. You know, and so that that was literally that day where I saw the numbers, the stats as a scientist, where I was like, I need to make a switch. And I left my job as a bio, as a biologist to pursue a career in wildlife filmmaking. And that's, you know, yeah, eight years ago. I guess if, you know, your heart and your mind is set on conservation and spreading the word, impact matters. It, do, it, it does. It does. Because exposure is the way to get impact. Yeah. And... and 
and this is nothing to discredit hardened scientists of which I, I never really became a true one because I went into media. They're doing the most important work. They're doing the actual stuff that other scientists need to make laws and regulations and implement change. But as long as I can get, you know, the messages that I get on Instagram every day of a kid going, Hey, I, I'm a sophomore in college and I just changed my degree from business management to wildlife conservation. As long as I keep getting those messages, I yeah. think that what I'm doing is working. Yeah. That's well, great. it is. Yeah. So, and I love it too. That's the other thing. From a selfish standpoint, I love it, man. <laughs> I get to go all over the world, work with incredible animals, live with indigenous cultures. You know, yeah, I get a little beat up here and there, but I, I absolutely love it. Yeah. I'm a bit jealous. To be yeah. <laughs> I think we both are. Oh, come on. You guys have it so sweet here. So for anybody listening to this, I got a tour of this black rifle facility right before uh right before we sat down. I mean, these guys don't don't let them fool you. They got it good over here. They, <laughs> they got dope trucks in the parking lot, a badass gym out back, you know, the the best coffee you can drink. It's not bad here, guys. No, it's not. It's it's not at all. And um, yeah, we get the opportunity to do a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, Evan Evan talks about it all the time and it it's, you know, the creating the same thing, exactly what you're putting yourself into as far as the ecosystem, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I, I think we are making a conscious effort here to kind of do what we're talking about right now, as far as tap into the old ways and also just kind of be good at what's going on now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like we're, we're just as entrenched in the media world as you are. For sure. More but, so. Yeah. But we also have this very conscious, like we, we know at the end of like when, when we put our heads down to go to bed, like we know that we would, we want to be in the outdoors. Yeah. And I think <laughs> yeah, we've done a good job about one, creating the ecosystem here to where it's like, it, it does feel similar too, and, I, and I don't want to use the word comfortable, but it's it's something that you know you can thrive in, right? It, it's an ecosystem that you know you can be successful in. And then also, like, I love that there's this, we were talking about this earlier too, is like, everybody's got their adventure vehicles out it's here. so you cool, know man. I, mean? like, I rolled up in my truck being like, sometimes I like kind of put my, you know, I do a lot of meetings in like LA and I'm like kind of hide my truck around the back because it's yeah. got a camper and it's filthy <laughs> and it's got big tires. Because there's Tesla, Tesla, Tesla at BMW. Exactly. Yeah. I rolled in here. I was like, yep, these are my people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it looks like a four by four shop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, no, you're, you're good. And, and um, it, it's, it's a very conscious thing that that's happening over here, you know, and, and I, it's only going to continue. I'm, I'm so excited for where everything is at right now because I'm, I'm seeing what it could potentially come, especially with the expansion of Black Rifle Coffee is like, yeah. we want, we want to be all over the nation. Right. So sure. like, I'm thinking like, Oh, uh, where can we go to go set up shop that we can have super easy access to, right, to remote wilderness? <laughs> I love that. You yeah, know? It, 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 we can do both of these things For because sure. we we have to. Yeah, as a society, as a nation, we have to be able to tap into both of those things. We have yep. to be good at the the current sphere of technology and and influence within the demographic of the people we're trying to reach. But we also have to be able to shut it all off go into the woods and interact with our environment and remember the the old ways in a sense. Well, you can tell just walking in here. I mean, there is such a sense of, look, I read, I read animal body language for a living, right? Humans are animals. I walked yep, yep. in here. Everybody's relaxed. Everybody's comfortable. There's such a sense of like, 
mutual agreement on what you just said and brotherhood and camaraderie in this building. It's awesome to see. You know, you walk in and it's it's these like-minded people that clearly get outside on the weekends. Other than your clean boots, Logan, everybody here looks, <laughs> everybody here looks like they're they're, they're uh, No, I'm just kidding. Logan got new boots and sure we're showing them off to us earlier, guys. But um, yeah, no, it's just so clear that that's just like you said. Everybody here, it's important to them, and this camaraderie and this the the, the feeling that you get in this building is awesome. Yeah, and it's you know the the last thing there that really ties it together is is which is kind of just so amazingly cool is is it's coffee is hey, right it, it's like yeah. we're, we're doing this thing in in the in the buildings and then we're taking that in, into this places so it's like it's the common tie for us like yeah. no matter where we are and what yeah. we're doing like it's it's like that remembrance and that thing that like keeps it all together but you i mean i knew it Right. Like I, not like I, I've, I'm, you know, I was driving through Salt Lake and I was like, Black Rifle Coffee's here. Like, these are my people. Like, I need to go hang out and see what they're doing. You know what I mean? That was it. Just because the coffee, like you said, has made this community of people that care about these same things. And it's awesome. It's freaking awesome, man. Like to do that with around coffee. I don't, I don't know how you guys have done it, but it's amazing that that is the common denominator. Yeah. And you know, we're, we're all extremely grateful. Like the, yeah. the, the people that support us are like, I, I don't even like, it's an error to call them customers at this yeah. point because it's exactly like, like, Oh, those guys. And like, that's the way we feel about our customers. Like these are our people. Right. Like, we got, we got to improve their, their consumption of said thing. And then like help to inspire them, help to inform them, keep Love them entertained. That. Like, you know, the pillars of what we're doing is very clear. Like everybody right. knows the mission statement for, for sure. We're trying yeah. to accomplish. Well, sure. and, you know, uh, everything we're doing with Free Range and Black Rifle, like all the meetings we have, they all loop back to how are we going to inspire and inform our audience? That's awesome. Yeah. How, how Those are always the key things. Like what are we doing to do these to keep them in that space? It's not how do we get them to buy more shit? Right. Oh, you feel that. You know that. I think anybody that's listening to this knows that. There's no like, you know, hey, go buy our product. You know, it's just like, do you care about the same things we do? You know, here's some good coffee to drink. And there, I can tell you guys as, as you know, a consumer of, of all, all kinds of different brands and media, I would so much rather be involved with something like that than, you know, fucking Kardashian's lipstick. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, what is that doing for the, for the world? What is right. that doing to inspire people? It, it, nothing. Yeah, and it's Trevor. We're working on a show for Free Range American right now, which I'm I'm super excited about. And Trevor's cool. gonna knock the pilot out here in a little bit up in Montana. Sweet uh, YouTube show, or how's that working? Yeah, yeah, we're gonna pro- start publishing on YouTube. See how it goes. Do it first season. Go love from that. there. Um, but what I love about this and and what we're working on is like. We're tapping into what it means to be human, yeah, in a in a few different ways, and that one of those obviously is being entrenched in nature, mm-hmm. but really promoting this this mastery of being a human, whether that's through a weapon you're interacting with or a means to survive. And hearing you talk about um, reading body language, yeah. whether that's from an animal or a human, like that's mastery. Yeah. Like it, it's a, it's a different form, but it's, it's a hyper essential social tool, um, both in the outdoors and in an urban environment. And I, th- what, what I really want to get out of this thing that we're working on right now is just spread this message. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like we're getting away from what it truly means to be a human. Like, let's get back to that. Love that. And, and you're, you're doing this, 
kind of a version of the of this same thing in it, but in, in a different way with this other part of the world. Yeah. And it seems to be falling to the wayside. But like when you look at Shark Week, like when Shark Week rolls around, like everybody's all about it. Everybody. Yeah. But there's no, it, it's, I think the idea for a lot of people of like going to interact with a shark is like, you know, that's never something they're going to do. Or, or maybe in a cage on vacation. Right. 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 Yeah. But like they don't want to interact. They want a controlled experience. Exactly. Controlled being the key word. Yep. Yeah. You're, you're making this stuff accessible and, and it's super cool. And it doesn't have to be like, obviously, you know, diving with the shark's probably going to get a few more views than, you know, interacting with a little critter in the jungle. <laughs> but like, it's still awesome. Yeah. You yeah. know? And that is so inspiring from my side of the table to like see you out there doing all this stuff. Oh, thanks, man. Oh, you know, the thing I try and tell people and, and try and show, and it's genuine too, is that my passion for an earthworm is just about as exciting as my passion for a great white shark, you know? <laughs> and it's just because they're incredible living creatures. They have different functions. They have different places in the ecosystem. You don't have to travel to the Amazon and live with a tribe and find an extinct caiman to have a good experience. You know, you can go in your backyard and flip over a log and learn about the snail and how its shell is made. And it's like, both of them are valuable. Like work your way up to go into the Amazon doing that if you want to, or don't, you know, just go in your backyard, go for a hike, learn about that stuff because it's all fascinating. It's all connected. They're all different ecosystems with different creatures that play different roles. And I think that's what it's all about. You don't have to like thump your chest and be like, I'm the guy that goes the furthest or climbs the highest or works the hardest. You can just be the guy that goes outside and enjoys it for what it is. And that's what I try and do every day is just, just enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. Well, and and that's the goal with what we're trying to do and what this series is going to be. It's like, look, there's a lot of things that I do that might not be accessible, but there's a version of all of these that anybody can do. So can you tell us about it? Like what, can you give us a, yeah, dig us into the pilot. Tell us what you did, where you went, what happened. Well, it hasn't happened yet. (laughs) Ah, okay. Tell us the plan. uh, Still in the planning phase. Still in the planning, but I'll be uh, chasing elk in Montana with a recurve. Okay. And I picked up a recurve uh, this spring. Yep. Great. That's tough. So you're going to track elk. You're going to go up over the hill. Oh, wait. It's so elk. So, okay. Elk, yeah. Yep. We'll so be calling them. You're going to be calling them in. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's going to be tough. And you have to film it. Yes. So one thing I've learned, you know, over my years of working with wildlife, doing something with an animal is hard enough. Doing it on camera, yep. it makes it exponentially more difficult. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you've got another body there now, right? Someone else putting out energy or can snap, step on a stick or, you know, crunch the leaves or whatever it is that can spook the the critter that you're after. So, yeah. yeah. And then you, you know, Trevor's case here, you have to do it alone. So that's how you're doing it, Trevor? Uh, no, this time, well, up in Montana. Well, I'll, I mean, a, as far as the, the media. Yeah, the media side. Yeah. Them. Will be all me. So I'm coming from, I've been here at Black Rifle now for almost two years as a photographer and doing mm-hmm. content and media. So I have a handle on most of it, it'll be a learning process, but for sure. at least that does eliminate that um, extra video person yeah. that, that may not be a vetted uh, guy or woman in that scenario. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, but really the the ethos of this is uh, it, it's not meant to be untouchable. Yeah, it, of course. It, it is yeah. meant to be like... Accessibility. And it's the same thing we're doing on the coffee side of things is yeah. like we're, we're getting people as far down the rabbit hole as we can. Sure. And, and that's going to be the same mentality that we're going to have with FRA when it comes to video content is like we're starting you from scratch. That's awesome. Here, Here's like the people that we 
you could potentially talk to. Here's like the areas you could go to. Here's the amount of time that you're going to need to put into in that's order awesome. to accomplish said thing. Yep. So, so that's what it is. Like we're absolutely trying to bridge that gap be- mm-hmm. between the outdoors and, and this current lifestyle that most people live. That's the message that's going to go out with this is like it, you know, maybe an elk hunt with recurve doesn't sound too exciting and, and maybe it doesn't need to. Right. But the process, the journey, the adventure that goes into that thing is something that anybody in this country can do. Right. Yep. You can learn how to do it. You can learn how to shoot the bow. You can figure out where to go. You can yeah. get in the car, get on the plane. Anybody can do yep. it. You can yep. do all the things. You don't necessarily have to be out there to get a freezer of meat. And you don't have to be a master of it. That's no. the other thing, right? I think a lot of people have this preconceived notion that you go from being a not like, oh, I've never done that. I don't know how to do it. I can't do it. It doesn't matter. Like you don't have to be a master of the thing to give it a shot, right? Whatever it is, whether it's hunting an elk with a recurve bow, going out to catch a snake, it doesn't matter. Like you don't have to be a master of it. You just have to learn, go through the process, pay your dues, take your steps and try it and well, experience and it. And that's definitely going to be, you know, the a core component to what this will be and what a lot of FRA is, is about is everybody has the ability to get out there and do something. You know, you want to go learn to shoot a bow or, you know, paint in the outdoors or take pictures or whatever the case is, go do it. Like here's an avenue and we're going to show you how we did it or I did it. Right. There's a version of this that can fulfill you possibly and you should go try and yeah. it's your version yeah right? your As version you do it, not, you do don't it your do mine yeah. yeah like exactly. i want to show you that this is doable right right yeah. love that promoting personal passion yeah. yeah that's the that is the one guys we all have that so in common you know what i mean it's like promote personal passion i love that. that's a great way to articulate it yeah so like for example one of the the ones that we're planning on doing right now is uh Trevor's got a, a team buddy who's up in Alaska mm-hmm. and same, same thing that we had, we had Mark Carter on a while ago who, um, is a pro snowboarder rancher Cool. and he was, he was growing up and he was seeing all these skiers on the mountains and then he saw a snowboarder. He's like, that guy's having way more fun <laughs> than cool. everybody else. That's what I'm going to do. And awesome. same thing with yeah, Jeff with up Jeff. in Alaska. He's just, he saw the the dog mushers. You saw uh-huh. these guys doing these massive races. He's like, that looks so much fun. I want to do that. And that to me, like now I'm getting the goosebumps because that inspires <laughs> me more than anything else in life. It's like Love when that. someone just sees something and it makes such a huge impact on them that's like, I have to do that. Do that. There's no choice. I have to go do that thing. Yep. And then begin the process of pursuing that thing. Yeah. Like, that's that's what the promotional. That's what we're yeah. going to promote. And a lot of personal this. growth comes from that. Absolutely, right? you you learn a lot about yourself and your capabilities, and like, oh, I've never shot a bow before. Like, how am I going to string it? You know, and you you learn like, oh, I can do these things. Like, I can learn. You know, it's like going on YouTube and watching a video yeah. about how to mechanic your car, and then you do it, and you're like, holy shit, I can do these things. You know, like there's personal growth <laughs> coming from that, and it's, it's a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all yeah. of us. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I love that. I love the the and it's the same thing I try and do on my show is show the process, right? Mm-hmm. Like from for what I do on Extinct or Alive and the other shows I make is like this is wildlife science, right? Here's how we do it. Here are the trail cameras, here's the bait, you know, here's where we go, here's who we talk to, and it's showing that process and how to do it. And like you said, then go and do your version of it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's I think I think everybody that's probably listening to this is going, "Well, here's something I want to do." Yeah. You know, I don't think I can do that. 
you can do it. It doesn't really matter what it is. I'm not saying you're going to be Bill Gates tomorrow, but you know, maybe you or can ever. learn to build a computer, yeah. you know, and like, just, just, it, it, and it doesn't matter what your passion is, just go for it. And it's, it's right. such a rewarding thing to pursue that. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what we're built for as humans, right? Like if you look at prehistory and I'm putting that in quotes, cause it's all history, right? You know, we as humans are built for skill acquisition and mastery. Mm-hmm. Like, we're built to learn how to flint, you know, flint nap arrowheads. Totally. We're built to learn how to track animals. Just transfer that to now. Like, right. if you want to learn to put a computer together or wrench on your car, there's an avenue for that. And you will feel fulfilled by getting to that point. 100%. It's going to happen. And yep. you're going to feel fantastic learning the skill, even if it's quote unquote useless. Totally. Who cares? Totally. Yeah. Oh, look, my entire life, I swear to God, like, until I was maybe... So when did I start in TV? Like 25 or 26. I was told by not my family because they always supported me, but basically everybody else that I knew, the skills you have are useless. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> learning to stop an elephant is a useless skill. You live in Santa Barbara, <laughs> California. You know, you have an elephant charging. <laughs> right. But, and it's, it's, you know, it didn't matter to me because they were my passions and my pursuits. And now I've managed to make a career out of combining all of those passions and pursuits. But there, there's no such thing as a useless skill. There is no such thing as a useless skill set you know, in my opinion, like it, it will teach you something. It, it your, your brain is a muscle and you're exercise, exercising yeah. it as you are pursuing that skill set. Yep. Absolutely. Like you're 100% right. It's like the analogy that comes to mind is like that, that opens a door. And right. then once you get into that room, that opens another door exactly. and another door and another door, but you don't know what's six rooms away right. until you open that first door. It's not like you can skip yeah, and it through. Might, and it the, might not be a process. straight line either. Like you might no, get totally. into that next room thinking I'm going through that door and you turn and there's a window you want to go through instead. Exactly. Like for real. Yeah, exactly. This and is a very confusing house, but yes, I agree with you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I feel like in a lot of skill development, one of those rooms is always larger and darker and feels like it takes forever to get through. For sure. And then you yep. feel like you have this breakthrough moment. Like I'm, I'm sure it hit you with the recurve when you were going through yeah. it. Where you're like, something happened th- that was a result of working through this process where it clicked. Yeah, I stopped putting arrows into the concrete. <laughs> That's what clicked. <laughs> there's, a, there's a fantastic quote by Alan Watts, the philosopher, uh-huh. Right. And uh, it's, it's funny because I've got it as a techno song on my phone now. That someone <laughs> made. But it, he goes, he goes, uh, um, you know, it doesn't, I'm going to misquote it, but basically the quote just says, it's one of those sayings that goes, you know, do what you love and the money will come, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just, just, it doesn't matter what it is. As long as you're pursuing your passion, you, you feel good and you feel fulfilled. And that I, I stand by that a hundred percent. But I feel like you do predominantly a lot of like endurance yeah. type training. But I mean, I'm still staying, you know, pretty strong. Like, uh, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago I was able to no problem do some overhead squats, like single arm with the 88 pound kettlebell. Yeah. It's a lot of weight. It's, yeah. it's still in there. Yeah. yeah. I'm just, you know, skinnier. Yeah. I, I, I mean, can just get into really little places. <laughs> there, There's not really a, a necessity for you to be able to squat 400. No. And I was doing that when I was, you know, in, in the teams, like I was, you know, squatting and deadlifting like the mid four hundreds and, you know, I weighed 195. Like I just don't need to do that anymore. 
No, and a lot of I the feels time so much it better. slows you down. Oh too. yeah, like, like dude, I was getting up and down the hill with just the pack, like you know, before the I got the deer, real quick. But had I weighed an extra fifteen pounds, that's an extra fifteen fucking pounds I have to yeah. carry around. Yeah, that's a lot, and that that all that muscle, in my opinion, doesn't always benefit you athletically no, for I, endurance stuff. Look at the yeah. animal kingdom. I mean, <laughs> they don't get big; like right. they stay as big as necessary. Yeah, and no bigger. Yeah, the end. And they're not taking creatine. And uh, you know? ta- yeah. I've, I've totally <laughs> seen Tony the Tiger taking stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he, he ripped. <laughs> <laughs> and we back. We're back. Forrest had to uh, take a quick potty break. Um, yeah. We're drinking a lot of water here. Trevor and, and I started chatting about uh, kind of some fitness stuff, but it made me think about, you've been posting all this, uh, all these shots from that prehistoric. Yeah. Um, Dude, I love Instagram that site. account. Like oh it, it's God. just, you know, species of animals. It's like uh, Neolithic humans uh-huh. and ancient animals. Pretty sure I follow the like, same page. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my, like, ev- like there's two of them. Like, I don't know. One of them is like evolution soup. Yeah. But, and Damn, you know, I, I feel like things. the short face bear has been talked about a lot oh, recently, yeah. but there, there's a whole bunch of other species that were absolutely enormous. Dude, there was like oh, a, for sure. a 25 foot sloth that lived in oh, South don't America. Me, don't get me started, guys. No, please. <laughs> yes. please. Let's go down this rabbit hole. <laughs> Do you have a favorite? <laughs> so Megatherium is the name yes. of that giant sloth, right? And, uh, Here's the thing. I'm not a cryptozoologist, right? I'll never go looking for Nessie or Bigfoot or I'm a biologist. Yeah, like, like you're not going to go out biology. looking for unicorns. No, it, it's it's silliness to me. And um, so for me, the thing that I study and try and find are these animals that are lost that that we know have been yeah, here. They right? for sure were here. 100%. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so this is my way of trying to sound like a sane person <laughs> when I tell you that I believe there is potential for megatherium to still exist. Oh my Lord, I would yeah. be so okay. Yeah, so, um, so okay, so me- again, megatherium, it's this huge sloth creature. It lived all throughout the Americas. We know it went extinct around 14,000 years ago. That might be wrong. That's I think it's that about, long. It's not that long. The caiman that I discovered in the in the Amazon has been around for about 2 million. Okay, so think about that for a second. Yeah, um, and, and likely longer, but we believe around two million. But um, didn't they just find those uh, prehistoric horses too? That they ooh. thought were gone. I thought that they, there was some like ice age horses that they had. Oh, I did see something like that. They found remnant yeah. genetics within a subpopulation. Yeah, I don't remember. I don't know the specifics of that. But regardless, the point is. Again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't think I'm a tinfoil hat guy. Maybe I am. Um, I don't, I don't study, you know, Bigfoots and Loch Ness monsters. But when it comes to the case of Megatherium and these, you know, there's still uncontacted tribes in the Amazon, right? Quite a, quite a lot of them. And in Peru in particular, there's a region in which they all have this, all all these tribes, some uncontacted, we believe, and and definitely the contacted ones, obviously we know, have this lore about this giant sloth Mm -hmm. Um, and this big creature. It's lumbersome. It's few and far between. And anyway, long story short, very long story. I met some people who told me that there's this region and I have it identified on a map and it's huge. It's like several hundred square miles maybe less, maybe maybe 100 square miles. And it's all geographically isolated by a mountain range, right? It's like a, almost a perfect yeah. ball of and, mountain range. And that country up in the Andes is rough. Oh, it's rough. And it's it's basically no one could get in there, right? And it's lowland jungle and forest within that ball and huge high snow-capped peaks around it. I believe. I actually don't so know. So it'd be a huge pain to get there. No one can get there. The yeah. only way you could get there is a massive helicopter 
um, you know, getting air dropped in, air lifted back out. You'd have to do it under the right circumstances. Uh, you know, I, I don't think you'd have to get a helicopter there to begin with because it would have to, you know, leapfrog several times. Anyway. So you, when do we leave? You get where I'm going <laughs> yep, with this, yep. right? My belief is that there is, I'm not saying Megatherium's there. I'm not saying there's dozens of them running around and we're going to find land of the lost. What I'm saying is I believe based on the amount of sightings, reports, accounts, lore, habitat, all the things we talked about earlier, based on all that, I believe there is the potential for a very small population to still exist in South America. Or even a descendant of that. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah, it might not be that exact animal, which we've found skeletal remains of, but perhaps during that lineage, because again, 14,000 years ago, not that long ago. It's not like there was a meteoric event <laughs> that wiped out all those animals 14,000 years ago. No. So... It's, um, you know, I, I really do believe that that sloth megatherium or something related to it could actually still be out there, which is it's bordering on that cryptozoology thing. But that, it was really sure. here. But it was a real animal. We know it was here. It's not like we found Yeti remains. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, I'm very fascinated by that that animal. Oh, so I'm curious. I I saw a sloth when I was down in Peru and it was so crazy to me just how slow like i know obviously <laughs> yeah. like it's a sloth right but like when you see that thing trying to move you're just like why why are you going so slow <laughs> well, pick like, it up just, bud. Just, just go faster man <laughs> and I, I was just like how is this thing still alive right <laughs> so does its movement does it tie back its current state of the slot does that tie back to the like massiveness that it used to have back in the day it's a good question i don't know the the answer to that you know evolutionarily speaking i mean things evolve due to necessity right they need to be faster they need to be stronger they need to be bigger they need to be smaller whatever it is the sloth never needed to be faster Right. It is it, that is a that is a result of natural selection. Not many things eat them. There's they they blend in well in the canopies, they're slow moving, etc. So they've never evolved the need to go faster. Now back in the day, there's recent science has just come out to suggest that T and if you guys are big um do you know what I'm about to yep. say? Yeah. If you guys are big Jurassic Park fans or the listeners are, I'm sorry, I'm about to ruin your day. But <laughs> I love this. There's recent science that just came out that believes that the T Rex max speed, contrary to Jurassic Park, was about five miles per hour and that it was a scavenger so it's like you know it, it, it's interesting you could run away yeah you could literally walk away at a decent <laughs> speed like it, it, and, and that's you know i don't know how proven that is i'm not a paleontologist but um it's uh you know it's it's some things just don't need to be fast you know other things do and and that's what's so incredible about the animal kingdom there are all these niches that get filled by these creatures and i think if the megatherium did still exist, this is based on nothing but opinion. If it did still exist, I think it would probably still be big, lumbersome, and slow because in these isolated pockets where people haven't put hunting pressure on it, it doesn't need to evolve any speed. It's at the right. top of its domain. Yeah, I mean, what? The largest predator down there would be a, a panther? Panther? A jaguar, yeah. yeah jaguar. jaguar, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah which, and, I mean... I mean, it could stomp it. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I think, and they're solitary hunters, right? So yeah. jaguars aren't teaming up on an animal the way a pride of lion can team up on an elephant. Yeah. So if you have, you know, in, in simply put, so to speak, an elephant-sized sloth, a jaguar is not going to do anything about it, you know, as a solitary predator. So it could, it could survive quite peacefully at adulthood. So when do we leave? <laughs> Again, I am so in for That's this. That's episode two after the elk hunt. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, is there anything like that that in the water? 
that that you're kind of like looking Ooh. at was like, and eh, there could be some ancient species. Yeah, I mean, like, like there's been postulation of what megalodon still or, Plenty. or, or I something I, like yeah. it being out there. Uh, there's one very interesting animal. Um, blanking on, it's got a strange name called like the mystery whale or the the lost whale or something like that. And it's interesting because. Uh, the reason that that creature is so fascinating to me is its audio has been recorded like six or seven times. So we know it's there. So we know something is there. And it's it's a whale song, right? It's a very distinct song with the sound of a whale. Now, is it like submarines that are picking this up? or I think it's researchers with hydrophones. Maybe it's yeah. submarines. I'm not really sure. It's not one that I've really taken a deep dive into. But, but we know that this animal has, um, you know, we know that there's this, very large whale creature making the song that nobody's been able to identify the world over. And uh, Adrian Greer, the guy from uh, Entourage, yeah, he actually got so fascinated by this. And I don't know him personally or anything, but he got so fascinated by this that he launched a whole, like I think it was like a six-month expedition on ships to try and find it. He's like, I'm going to sink my own money into this. Yeah, he did. And and I think sink was the right term. <laughs> um, but uh, he, uh, yeah, he... I just think it's a really fast, the lonely whale. That's what it's called. The lonely whale. And um, nobody's been able to find it or identify it. So look, we know, you know, this is the stat that gets dragged through every single science classroom in the world is we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about the ocean. I think that there's definitely potential for the species of whale to be out there that we know nothing about. That's whales are so intelligent. Their brains are bigger than we are. Right. Yeah. There, there's no doubt in my mind that there could be this hyper intelligent whale. And again, the more, I think I said this earlier, the more intelligent a species is, the less of them there tend to be. Right. Like there's not billions of gorillas or chimpanzees. There's, there's thousands or tens of thousands. Right. Because that much energy put into developing a brain is less energy put into reproduction. So, that's a long-winded way of saying, I think if this whale's out there, which we pretty much know it is based on the audio recordings, right. it's likely a very intelligent creature. And if it's very intelligent, it's probably very wary, staying away from the sounds of boats and people and things right. like that. And yeah. so I think there could totally be this lonely whale out there that we don't know about. It could be huge. It could be a blue whale. You know, we wouldn't know. The world's a big place. God, that'd be wild. There's yeah. some weird stuff in the ocean, man. Mm -hmm. And just the, the search that would need to happen... Because, like, there's just so much volume so much. in the oceans. And how, that's the thing, is, like, part of my job is piecing together the puzzle, right? It's like, yeah. okay, this animal, as a biologist, I look at this animal, right? Whatever it is. Let's say it's, a, it's, let's say it's the tortoise in Fernandina that I found. Okay, it has to live in a green space. It has to be here. During the spring, it has this behavior. Uh, you know, we, we, we can narrow it down. Right, you—that's really hard to do in the ocean with a right. creature you know nothing I mean, about, other than a sound. Shit, some of those whales range the whole Pacific. Yeah, like all, all right. Yeah. So where are we going to start looking? Yeah, we're going right. to look between here <laughs> and Japan. Yeah, <laughs> and if we don't see it, we're going to Antarctica. Yeah, like, it's like yeah. good luck. Yeah, right. And you, you know, you, you, if you, you, you mentioned this earlier, Logan, about feeling small. Like you have not felt small until you've sat in a boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Oh my lord! And you're yeah. like, wow! Like I can do nothing. Like I am a, I am a dot. I am an ant. <laughs> yeah. Have you gone down the rabbit hole on octopus yet? Oh my god! Don't even get me started. <laughs> me, yes. Joe Rogan, my buddies, everybody—they're aliens. We all know they're aliens, right? <laughs> like they're they, so they weird. Like they have different genetics. They're all sorts of weird. They do weird shit. They have huge eight brains. brains. Eight of them. They're yeah. Like, come on. Yeah. So come on. Do you, did it come from like a meteor? 
so that's the question, right? So to to explain what we're talking about, do they here, have a secret city down there? Right. <laughs> it's like our cephalopods, specifically octopus, which have totally different functions to how we basically any other life creature does. They have eight brains, one in each leg. They have intelligent chromatophores in their skin, which can change shape, texture, etc. They do everything different. They do everything different, um, and they're very intelligent. Um, and the there's there's science there's theories surrounding the fact that they came here as as you know more simple celled organisms off of meteors and evolved into octopuses that we have today in the ocean right did they do that i fucking hope so because that's really <laughs> really that's cool. so cool that's yeah. super cool <laughs> it is like not at all my area of expertise to comment on it but i love the idea i think they here's the thing is are they bizarre enough to believe that theory? A hundred percent. They're such weird, crazy, unique creatures. But at the same time, like try and explain, a, you know, try and explain an elephant to somebody that doesn't understand one that, you know, yeah. try and explain an elephant to somebody that lives in, in Japan. That's never seen one on TV. You know what I mean? Like try and explain like there's the, some stuff out there. I mean, like those Japanese spider crabs, like, yeah. come on, the world is bizarre. And, and there's so many, there's so much room. There's so much space for evolution to take place. Um, and so many ecological niches that need to be filled that, did the octopus just fill these niches coming from a more simple organism? Most likely. Yeah. But they're just so alien to us and our understanding of life and our understanding of intelligence and adaptability that it makes total sense to look at that and go, yep, that's an alien. <laughs> yeah. When you say they're highly intelligent, like what's some of the things that they do where you're like, eh, I don't know how that's possibility. Yeah. A per, the, one of my favorite examples of that is I believe it's a Monterey Bay Aquarium, but it might be a different one. I can't recall anymore. Um, had this mystery taking place, right? And their sharks of this petting at the petting tanks or whatever, you know, the yeah. like little touch tanks were disappearing. They're small, I think swell sharks or horn sharks, whatever yeah. they were like the little friendly ones that you go in and touch tank with your kids were disappearing. And this was like, nobody could figure this out. They're like, what the fuck is going on? It's not like people are, are putting sharks in their purses. Yeah. Like, who's stealing sharks? <laughs> um, and, uh, and so uh, this aquarium, I, again, I think it was Monterey Bay Aquarium, just like couldn't figure it out. They stationed security guards there and they, they, they did like all these things to try and figure it out. And finally, they set up security cameras, right? And what they figured out within a night or two was the giant Pacific octopus, which was like 15 aquariums away, 15 like tanks away, was coming out at night, waiting until everybody had gone home, the lights were off, was taking its little hands, lifting the lid off of the aquarium, getting out of the aquarium, climbing down the side of the tank, over across the floor, dipping into the touch tanks, grabbing a shark, taking it with him, going back into his tank, closing the lid and going into his little hole and chowing down on it and doing this for like years while no one could figure it out, leaving no trace, closing the lid, everything. It, it, this, this animal had the ability to leave the aquarium anytime it wanted. It was like, nah, I'm pretty good here. I'm just going to keep eating sharks from the top. And it tank. can turn sort of invisible. Yeah, like, <laughs> totally. And, and uh, you know, there's many other things about their brain chemistry and and their ability to solve puzzles and get in and out of things and change their body shapes, blah, blah, blah. But that story to me is like, that's oh, my wild. God. Like, 
we've all had a dog break out of the house or break out of the car. And you know, you're like, all right, fucking fluffy's out in the backyard, like chewing on a fence post or something. Right. He didn't come back in, go back through the dog door, put the fence post back and you know, paint <laughs> right. it clean. And that's right. what this octopus was yeah. doing. Like that is insane heightened intelligence. It, it really is. And, and especially when you start thinking about things like, I mean, there's been man eating leopards that have learned to go through doors and windows and thatched roofs. They're not putting them back, right? Exactly. After the fact, exactly. you know that that that's a that's an A to B solution for mm-hmm. that animal, and they're very intelligent, right? Like, right. That's a big cat with a yep. big brain. Yep. We're talking about an octopus yep. that just put the puzzle back together after it took it apart to do what it wanted to do. That it it had like a preconceived notion. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. That, that is intelligent. That's yeah. Smart. That is not, that's not just like I solved a problem for myself. You know, the, the equivalent of that being I solved the problem for myself is the next day the octopus is in the touch tank sitting there, right? Because it, it's like the there's floor. food here. Right. But it knows it doesn't want to get caught. So it went goes back. back to its home, replaces the thing because it knows yep. that's, that's telltale. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah. The, <laughs> that's scary smart. <laughs> that's yeah. freaking scary. <laughs> the eight brain thing to me is... It's so crazy. Like, what are each of those things? Like, how, might even be nine. I got to like a hive I brain. Look this up. It might yeah. even have one in its in its core of its body and one in each leg. I got to I got to double it's check. Ridiculous, right? Dude, those things are wild. I'm, I'm googling it. Sorry, I, I I've, I've got her. I, I don't remember now. <laughs> Use the wizard. It's fantastic. We gotta know. I gotta look it up. Yeah, because I rem- I recall like hearing like they have the bit like open jars mm-hmm. or, and then, or go through and solve three hearts puzzles. and nine brains. It's not eight. It's not one in each leg. It's one in each leg, small one plus a main neural receptor. Yeah. What three hearts hell? and nine brains. If that, if that's not an alien, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. And if it could break out of its tank, what, like, but it's going back. It's like going back to its aquarium. As opposed to like, like it knows trying it, to it, escape. It knows it has a comfortable life. Just wants an extra shark snack. Yeah. Like it, it totally. I, I believe that it, you know, I think it was a giant Pacific octopus. They're huge. They're huge. And they live, the, like the Monterey Bay Aquarium is on the water, right? So that animal could have left the aquarium if it wanted to. Uh, and it obviously has gone far enough to know that there's other stuff out there. For sure. Yeah. So maybe it's like, you know, I kind of like it here. It's good here. Yeah. Life's it's easy. like what Joe said about <laughs> giraffes. Like... Uh, there's nothing chasing me and there's people that feed me food. Yeah, I'm good in the zoo. Yeah, totally. <laughs> there is there is something to that. It's funny because there's big like anti-captive animal movements and stuff like that. You know, there's been a big period and, and I support a lot of the idea behind it, but there's been a big period of like shut down zoos and animals deserve to be wild. Yeah. It, not all animals want to be wild. Well, and I really I believe that. And a lot of those captive animals are second generation, third generation, or third or fourth multiple, or fifth, like, et cetera. Yeah. They couldn't be released. Correct. I also, it insp- and this is a thing that, you know, it's sometimes it's an unpopular opinion, but I stand by it. If the husbandry is done correctly, the animal husbandry, like the Santa Barbara Zoo, where I live, for instance, such a fantastic little facility. They take care of their animals so well. The animals are happy. They're all captive. You know, these are not wild-caught animals. They're all captive bred and raised and inspire so much caring for wildlife. There's camps there every day with kids running around going, Mommy, look at the giraffe. I fed it a leaf. You know, look at that Look at that animal. It's just that th- that kind of thing is so worth it to me, like for the greater good. Right? Sure. To have those kids grow up and remember when they fed the giraffe. Like, And maybe now they want to be a giraffe scientist when they grow up like i love that stuff i think it's important that we don't lose that yeah giraffes are one of those man i did a little 
time in South America or South Africa. And I just look at those things and I got a chance to get pretty close to him. It's like, that's a dinosaur. Oh, they're so weird. Yeah. They're facing a silent extinction. And a lot of people don't realize that. And uh, it's not talked about a lot because they're, they're not like a sexy animal. Yeah. You know, they're like, we all know that rhinos are up against it, right? We know there's problems with elephants, et cetera, but giraffes are, are truly facing a silent extinction where their habitat is getting smaller and smaller. Um, they're getting, they're, they're delicious by the way. I've eaten them as a kid growing up, uh, from, all kinds of reasons from safari camps and things, but, um, and they're, they're very commonly poached in the bushmeat trade and their numbers are dwindling year after year. And it's something, you know, that I'm, I appreciate this platform to talk about it for a second because people don't realize you, nobody associates a giraffe with disappearing. Everybody thinks, Oh, giraffe, you know, they're there. They're yeah. awesome. They're great, but they are, they truly facing a silent extinction. It's a big problem in Southern Africa. Wild. Yeah. But that, we'll that, fight that. Yeah. So, so <laughs> what's the, like, when you look at that from a scientific perspective, like, how do you increase their environment so that they can survive? Or, or well, like, what, what's yeah. the, some of the potential solutions there? It's, it's the main thing is mitigating human wildlife conflict, right? So the conflict being uh, space in this situation, it's like slash and burn agriculture, expansion of, of towns and cities, blah, 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 and taking away the giraffe's wild space. So that's the, the main thing is like solving that, you know, yeah. stopping, stopping encroachment onto wild habitat. Like what we've done here in the, in the United States, like making sure that there are big enough tracts of land for the animals to stay safe and remain and protected and then any spillover that's fine right that will happen and and that's fine so mitigating that problem and then poaching no matter where you are in the world but in africa in particular is a rampant problem right so it's controlling poaching and conservation is a luxury let me be clear you only care about saving an animal if you have a stomach full of food and a place to put your head right Right. you you don't care about saving it if you're starving to death and it's standing in front of you and you can eat it so solving bigger uh, human problems like starvation and, um, you know, corruption and, and poverty, things like that are at the forefront of saving wildlife. And I think that's something that a lot of people in my field tend to overlook. They're like, just stop poaching. It's like, well, that guy's starving to death. Yeah. I I think that's been the, the tough pill for a lot of purely just save them conservation groups Mm -hmm. is understanding that that animal has to have a value beyond meat or sure. beyond the hide to the people living there. Yep. If it doesn't, then they're just going to kill it. A hundred percent. They I don't mean, like. They don't care. They you know? don't. And economic value on wildlife is important, and that's why it ecotourism is. is so fantastic. Yep. And again, the people, a lot of people don't like this. That's why trophy hunting, if done correctly, is so fantastic. It's true. I mean, you know, somebody pays a hundred grand to kill one lion. That hundred thousand dollars is now paying for that park to remain open, which saves all the other animals exactly in the park. Right. All, exactly every right. other animal, all the wildebeest, all the warthogs, everything. all the everything. Yep. And it has to be done right. Management is Absolutely. the key, right? Because there's tons of corruption that takes place within that system. And that's its own set of problems that need to be resolved. But, but that's a separate issue. It's a separate issue. Exactly yeah. right. The whole like, don't kill anything. Don't, you know, that's a bad stance to take. And, they, and they've seen like, the result of that. Um, I can't remember where, but they... They stop trophy hunting for some of these animals in a, a I can't Botswana. remember. Botswana. Botswana, yeah. Mm-hmm. And now how much of their animal life there has disappeared due to poaching? Huge it, increase in poaching, yeah. No value yep. on anything, so go for it. Mm-hmm. And and South Africa is a good 
uh, model for this, right? You can go to Kruger National Park where there's yeah. no hunting at all, and you can see all the things habituated and happy and together. And that should be there. Ecotourism should be there. But one might need the other because you can also go to South Africa and, like you said, pay $100,000 to shoot the lion. I don't want to do it. I don't want to shoot a lion. Yeah. And that's my choice, right? But it doesn't mean that for the greater good of the species, it shouldn't exist. Precisely. From a conservation standpoint, how do you feel about a place like Texas where you've got a ton of uh, possible T-Rexes? We're not <laughs> sure. Yeah. There's know. some rich guy with a T-Rex in yeah. Texas somewhere. Yeah. But yeah. a mass migration of, of different species that are traditionally from Africa and privately owned in a, in a state here, like, should we be opening more of that up? Or Ugh, that's a tough, it's a, that, that's such a double-edged sword. It's like, should we be bringing in antelope and all of these creatures from other countries into Texas for people to hunt and have privately? No, we probably shouldn't, right? It's not good for the ecosystem. It's not good for the environment. They're here, you know, they're here now. If they're managed correctly, it's, it's not going to do any more damage. Do you know what I mean? If, yeah. if you have a big game park in Texas and you can go hunt a sable antelope there, so be it. You know what I mean? I don't think that necessarily needs to be shut down tomorrow for the greater good. I, I don't really feel like it makes much difference. But if those animals get out and start causing running havoc, like take the Florida Everglades, for instance, where, you know, the Burmese pythons are huge and the iguanas and the list goes on and on. That's a problem. So I don't necessarily agree with like the exotic, you know, hunting pet ownership thing. It's Texas, right? Everything's bigger in Texas, yep. including what you can shoot. And uh, it, it's there. So I think as long as it's managed and if those dollars can go back into like native habitat restoration, conservation of native species, things like that, keep it. Like use it. Use that as a tool to help other things. Don't necessarily get rid of it and be like, well, shit, we used to make, you know, a couple hundred million a year as a state off of this thing that's now gone. Um, that sucks. We shouldn't have done that. You know, I think that's a bigger mistake. So it's, yeah. it's just, it's a weird balancing act that you yeah. have to have to do. Well, and thankfully, like, what is it? The Pittman-Robertson Act, all the firearms, ammunition, bows, arrows, all the hunting and sporting equipment, they are still if you're going to buy that to go hunt a sable in Texas, you're still contributing to conservation. Right. That money right. is still going to those places. And that's good. And it's funny because America has done, I think that's one of the problems as we see here is people are like, if hunting is good for conservation. It is in America. It's managed yeah, very here. well here. Go to Africa where everybody's lining their own pockets. You know, not everybody. I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people are, are only caring about themselves, lining their own pockets. There's so much corruption and there's so much problems. It's not always good. It has to be done right. And it's hard for people to digest that not everybody does it right. Um, and that's the thing. All of these things, whether it's hunting for conservation, ecotourism is done incorrectly all the time. Baiting cage, baiting dives for sharks and exploiting the animals and saying it, putting it under the name of conservation. And, you know, these things are all, they can all be managed correctly and they can all be mismanaged. And you, if it's done well, it's, it's, they're all, they're all good things in my opinion. Do you feel like the United States is doing a good job when it comes to conservationism? Yeah, and this is, in some circles, a very unpopular opinion. I think they're doing an excellent job. Are there flaws? Huge, massive, terrible ones. You know, the Everglades, like I said a minute ago, yep. so look at it. It's a nightmare. Like, that place needs a reset button. It's so full of invasive species. 
But over as a whole, like the amount of public land, like we spoke about, the way that, you know, white sea bass, where I live, have bounced back from near extinction, the way the American bison has, you know, come back from near extinction. The list goes on and on. It really does. Unfortunately, we we as a society of humans, not just Americans, wait until it's like too late to try and fix things. Like we're much more about um, repairing something than preventing it when it comes to wildlife. And that sucks. Like we wait until like there's genetic bottlenecks and there's only 200 of them left. And now we're like, holy shit, we need to fix this. It's like what we're doing with rhinos now, right? It's like, there's no rhinos left. Fuck, you know, we should have started 30 years ago and gone, okay, there's a good population Let's make sure they stay. And it takes a long time to, you know, get it, quote, fixed. I mean, if you look at the sheep population in North America, Mm -hmm. we nearly caused the extinction of all four of those species. Exactly. And it's taken a century to get them back to a manageable level. Right. And that's good conservation. Do you know what I mean? That's good. The fact that we've even been able to do it in a century, that's good conservation. And that's why, Logan, my my short answer to you is, are we doing a good job? We're doing a great job. Is there room for improvement? tons, but I think as a model for conservation globally, like if we could take what the United States is doing for conservation and say, hey, let's not wait until it's too late. Let's do this now. Then we're, we're, we're ahead of the game. Sure. Cool. Well, that's awesome for us. Like, <laughs> dude, this has been an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for, for swinging by and yeah, hitting us up. And, this is fantastic. Thanks, guys. Uh, let, let the audience know like where they can find you or, you know, find out about you yeah for sure yeah so my thing is wildlife and conservation in case you couldn't tell from the last hour and a half um and uh you know i'm on all the social channels forest galante forest with two r's um i have shows on animal planet discovery channel currently um there everything i do is in the adventure and wildlife space uh always to try and promote conservation and getting outside and um, you know, thank you guys for having me in that great cup of coffee this morning and <laughs> sitting here in this awesome studio. It's nice. I feel like things are normal right now. You know, I mean, it's 2020. Things are, are crazy out there. It's normal in this space. And yeah. it's nice. So yeah. thank you guys. Of course. Of course. This is Free Range American. Thanks for listening.